Well, it was the joke that produced headlines all around Australia uh, when comedian Ruben Kay uh, made a sexually explicit joke about Jesus on Channel 10's panel show, The Project. Uh, a joke which, for the sake of decency, I won't be repeating today. And how did people respond to Kay's joke? Well, it, it sparked outrage on social media. There were even protests in the streets. The following evening, uh, the hosts of the show offered an on-air apology for what had happened. But then there were also a whole bunch of other people who simply thought the joke was hilarious and felt that it was Kay who, had, who was the one deserving of an apology. Uh, needless to say, I doubt any of this controversy has harmed Reuben Kay's career one little bit. But here's the thing. There's nothing particularly novel about mocking Jesus. In fact, he's been the butt of jokes for the last 2,000 years. Take, for example, this ancient graffiti, uh, dated somewhere between 50 and 250 AD. Uh, it depicts a, a human-like figure with the head of a donkey nailed to a cross. Uh, next to it is a, a smaller figure with one arm extended towards the one being crucified. And uh, beneath the image in ancient Greek are words which translated read, Alexamenos, worshipping his God. It's obviously a, a joke about Jesus at the expense of one of his earliest followers, someone named Alexamenos. But then, even when Jesus lived on earth, he, he was no stranger to mockery, as we'll see very clearly in today's passage. Now, if you don't already have a Bible open in front of you at uh, Mark chapter 15, let me encourage you to grab one now and turn with me there. Uh, you'll find it on page 1586 of the church Bibles. That's Mark chapter 15. And as you're looking that up, let me give you a little bit of context. It's now the day of Jesus's death. Uh, in a bid to save his own skin, the local Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, has given in to the Jewish crowd's demands for Jesus to be uh, executed, even though he knows that Jesus is innocent. It's true that Jesus has claimed to be the king of the Jews, but in a spiritual sense, not, not, not a political one. My kingdom is not of this world, he said. But now that claim has been twisted by Jesus' enemies, and he's been convicted of trying to uh, be what he'd always refused to become a political insurrectionist. Well, with his death sentence pronounced, the Roman soldiers take Jesus away and flog him. Taking turns, they thrash him with a whip made of, from leather uh, cords with pieces of jagged metal and bone uh, woven through them. It's a gruesome form of punishment and one that many prison, prisoners don't survive. But Jesus does. Though by this stage he must look like an absolute wreck of a man. Well, when they finish flogging him, the soldiers take Jesus into the courtyard of the building known as the Praetorium, uh, which is the former palace of King Herod the Great, uh, located there in Jerusalem, but which now operates as HQ for these soldiers. And it's there that, that all the soldiers on duty crowd around Jesus. Not in order to make sure that he doesn't escape, 
but so that they can have a little bit of fun with him. Here, read with me Mark chapter 15, verse 16. Chapter 15, verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Well, as the soldiers swarm around Jesus, one of them has a thought. Hey, hey, didn't this bloke claim to be a king? (laughs) Look at him. So weak. So pathetic. What a joke. I know, if he wants to pretend to be king, then then let's give him what he wants. We're, We're in a palace after all, aren't we? So come on, fellas. Let's give this wannabe the coronation he deserves. And with that, they stripped Jesus of his clothes and put around his shoulders a purple robe, probably some military cloak uh, that's lying around, with purple, of course, being uh, the colour of royalty. Then another soldier weaves together the stalks of a thorny plant to make a mock crown. Of course, crowns are usually used for bestowing honour, aren't they? But here the goal is the exact opposite. The the crown is is to humiliate, it's to dishonour Jesus. And then the merciless pack cries out in mock homage, Hail, hail, king of the Jews, using the salute usually reserved for the emperor. He read with me from verse 17. Verse 17. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns, And set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And I'm sure their sardonic charade is accompanied by howls of laughter. But the soldiers' actions aren't just sardonic, they're sadistic too. One of them picks up a staff and begins whacking Jesus over the head. Whack, whack, whack. I'm sure. Pain surges through Jesus as the thorns pierce his scalp. But interestingly, the author of this account, Mark, he he doesn't focus on Jesus' physical pain here. Instead, it's the shame the soldiers are heaping on Jesus. And so he goes on to tell us how, in their complete contempt for Jesus, the, the soldiers spit on him before falling to their knees in fake adoration. And then when they're done, they they take off Jesus' royal regalia, dress him again in his own clothes and and lead him away to his death. Here, read with me from verse 19. Verse 19. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Well, it's an unbearably cruel scene, isn't it? So cruel. And I think it's fair to say that that nothing anyone could do or say today, even the likes of Reuben Kay, would come even close to the the mockery heaped on Jesus that first Good Friday. 
But the thing is, this mocking of Jesus by the soldiers, it's so much more than just a sick joke. Because you see, there's more going on here than meets the eye. And it's important for us to understand that. It's something that becomes apparent when we look back at what Jesus had said to his disciples five chapters earlier. He told them, you can read with me up on the screen, he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that's Jesus' way of referring to himself, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now listen to this. Who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Did you get that? All all the mockery, all the insults, all the rejection faced by Jesus there in the praetorium, he knew it was all going to happen. He knew it. And yet he consciously and resolutely chose to go to Jerusalem anyway. Now, doesn't that strike you as strange? I mean, most of us will do everything we can to avoid humiliation, won't we? I know I do. Remember a few months ago, I was here at church one Sunday night and we just finished singing the first song of the service. And so I sat down. Nothing particularly remarkable about that, except for the fact that that night we were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And there on my chair was one of those little Lord's Supper cups. You know the ones with that bright red juice in them? Well, as soon as I sat down, I I knew my mistake. I realised my mistake. In fact, I I could feel my mistake. (laughs) My cold, wet, sticky mistake. And so I jumped up and made my way to the toilets as quickly as I could to see if it was as bad as I thought. It was worse. (laughs) And so for the rest of the night, do you know what I did? I made it my number one goal to keep my back to everyone. Walking around like a school principal. Why? Because who chooses humiliation? Well, apparently Jesus does. Rather than doing everything he can to avoid the mockery and scorn that day, Jesus purposefully heads towards it. And that forces us to ask the question, why? And again, it's because there's more going on than meets the eye. You see, friends, to really understand what's going on here, you have to realise that the way those soldiers treated Jesus that day is actually a picture of how people have always treated God. You see, from the very beginning, people have denied 
God's kingship and rejected his authority over them. The book of Romans in the Bible puts it this way. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, none of us have given God the glory he is due as our creator, as the king of the universe. Instead, we have all sinned. We've all rejected his authority over us. That's you. That's me. That's all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think any of us here today would ever dream of playing dress-ups with God, hitting him on the head with a staff or pointing at him and laughing hysterically. But like the soldiers, we have all treated God like a pretend king, rejecting his authority over us. It's seen as we arrange our lives, not according to his commands, but according to our own desires. It's seen in our greed, in our gossip, in our lust and in our, our lies, in our ingratitude and in our unforgiveness. And yes, it's even seen in our crude joking, looking at you, Ribbon K. But it's not just him. Or, or some of us. It's all of us. It's that attitude in all our hearts that says, you're not my God. You're not my king God. I'm the boss of me. And so metaphorically speaking, it is like we have all spat in the face of God. And that is a terrible thing. Those soldiers saw Jesus as some sorry, shabby, pretender king. But they were wrong. Jesus is the son of God. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. A reality he proved to be true two days later by rising from the dead, just as he had said. Now, friends, it is we who are the sorry, shabby, royal pretenders. It's we sinners who are worthy of scorn and death for thinking that we're the rightful kings of our lives. But this story, this story about the soldiers, doesn't just show how all people have treated God. It's also a picture of how God chooses to respond. Because you see, as the son of God, Jesus could easily have destroyed these soldiers in a second. At any point, he could have called down uh, an entire army of heaven, heaven's angels, to, to wipe his enemies off the planet. But he didn't. He didn't even try to resist or run away. He didn't even open his mouth in protest. 
Instead, he willingly went through it all, all the way to the cross. And again, we ask why? And again, we find the answer in the book of Romans, where we're told that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Why did Jesus willingly endure all that humiliation and death? The answer is because of his love for us. A love that now offers forgiveness and reconciliation with God. You see, in that praetorium, Jesus took the worst hatred and mockery and rejection that humanity could throw at him. And he went all the way to the cross to pay back our betrayal with love. If it were a joke, then I guess this would be the punchline. That even though we are the make-believe kings, in his great love for us, the king of glory endured the scorn and death we deserve. So we would never have to. Though, of course, it's not the kind of punchline we should laugh at, is it? But if not, then how should we respond? What ought we do with this extraordinary love God has shown us in Jesus? Well, like in any genuine relationship, I think it's a matter of saying, sorry, please, and thank you. Sorry, please, and thank you. First of all, we respond by saying sorry. That is by recognising that our sin is very serious, friends, very offensive to God. That in ignoring him and doing whatever we want, we've acted shamefully towards our creator, the God of the universe. And that ought to cut us to the heart. And so firstly, it is appropriate that we humble ourselves and say to God, sorry. And then second, we say please. We ask God to please forgive us through Jesus, to have him take our shame and guilt away, that we might be reconciled to God once and for all, and given a place in Jesus' eternal kingdom. That's what we want, isn't it? And that is what he is offering. And so we say, please. And third and finally, we say, thank you. Thank you to God for giving us Jesus. And for the joy and peace that come from knowing that because of him, we'll never have to face the shame and judgment we deserve. We say thank you, not just with our lips, but with our lives, as we now strive to live with Jesus as our King, obeying and honouring him as we should. 
Yeah, friends, that's how we should respond appropriately. That's how we can respond appropriately to God's extraordinary love this Easter. We say sorry, please, and thank you. Friend, is this how you want to respond to God's love today? Well, if so, would you please join me now as I lead us in a prayer? Let's pray. Dear God, we are sorry for all the times we've ignored you and rejected your authority. We're sorry that we've acted like pretend kings and in the process sinned against you. We know that we're deserving of contempt and eternal punishment. Father, please, please forgive us. Though we have made ourselves your enemies by our sin, please reconcile us to yourself through Jesus, our only hope. Please take away our guilt and shame and give us a place in Jesus' eternal kingdom. Father, thank you. Thank you for our saviour, Jesus. For the great love you've shown us in sending him to suffer and die in our place. Thank you for the hope and peace we find in him. Help us to now live lives of thanks as we strive to live for Jesus, our King and our Saviour. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen.